Romans chapter 3 and Lord willing this morning we'll go all the way to the end of the chapter here. Um, It's kind of an interesting week for me. It's been a while but this Tuesday I actually went this last Tuesday I actually went skiing. You know people still do skiing not everybody is snowboarding believe it or not man and so I went skiing, and I took my son Aaron skiing with me as well. Um, He didn't want to snowboard. He wanted to ski. And so anyways, we had a great time, just to let you know. It was his first time doing that. Um, We took a lesson, and uh, then we went out and stepped out by faith, and we went skiing, and it was so cool. But, you know, as you can probably imagine, uh, how many of you here have gone skiing or snowboarding? Um, Do you remember the first time you went? Oh, man, how many times did you fall down <laughs> over and over and over again, you know, and everyone's different. But my son, he's got the, a, a little bit of a different makeup to him. Um, he just couldn't get up, man. I mean, he just could not get up. He would fall down and I thought he was like paralyzed. And so, you know, I'd ski up to him. I'm OK, OK, put that leg over here and turn this one this way. And come on, you can do it. And man, he just... He just, for some reason, he couldn't get up. I think it was more like he wouldn't get up, to be honest with you. We had such a great time. But I'm serious. Every time I'd have to go up to him, I'd have to lift him up. I'd have to take off his, you know, ski. I'd have to do everything to, you know, to, to get him up. And uh, even the last uh, run down the, the hill, um, I took a terrible spill. Terrible spill. I don't know if you guys saw him today, but he's got the right... You know, side of his face, it's all gashed. And, uh, you know, again, there I am lifting him up, uh, tending to his wound. Uh, it's been an interesting journey for us. And, you know, I, it didn't really hit me at first. But then after reflecting on that whole thing, you know, in many ways, that's the way it is, you guys, with us and the Lord. You know, we're, we're falling down. We're stumbling. We're made of dust. We're wicked, we're wretched, and we're weak. But you want to know something? God is always there. God is always there to lift you up. Why? Because of his love. I mean, I know uh, I love my son. But imagine how much God loves you. You know, and in going through the book of Romans right here, we're going to finish up the portion in which God says everyone's guilty. And I thank God that we're kind of finishing up with that portion. But then we're going to get into this whole aspect of how God lifts us up, how God has saved us because of the great love in which he has for us. And I just want to encourage you guys in that this morning, man. Today is a very simple message, very simple, that we are guilty apart from Christ, but in him, by faith, We are saved. And notice what it says here in verse 9. It says, What then? Are we better than they? Well, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. And I know a lot of you here for, you know, you've been a Christian for a while. You're going to know a lot of the things that we study uh, this morning. But I pray that you wouldn't come to church saying, Oh, I want something new. I want something new. Better than that is I want something true. Always remember that. And as we go through our study today, we're going to see 
the Lord uh, sharing with us basically the gospel message. Now, we've gone through the book of Romans. And when we were there in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, we saw the immoral pagan Gentile, that he's guilty. Even though he's never heard, the Bible says, that the heavens declare the glory of God. And so the pagan, immoral, Gentile Jew, they're guilty. The moral man, apart from Christ, we saw in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, is guilty as well. That, you know, good, moral man is guilty apart from Christ, that immoral, pagan, Gentile. And then we saw last week the religious man. Even the Jew, he's guilty before God apart from Jesus Christ. The immoral man, the moral man, the religious man. We see it right here. Verse 9 again, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. You know, the Jew thought because he was a Jew, he was okay, and that's not true. There was no racial or cultural exemption As Paul has been saying, none are better than the other. We read here, both Jews and Greeks, what? That they are all under sin. And so for us, not new, but we know it's true that all the people out there, even though they might be good people, they are guilty under sin. They need someone to tell them about Jesus Christ. You know, we're going to see eventually when we get to the book of Romans chapter 10 that You know, somebody has to be sent. Somebody's got to go out there. How beautiful are the feet of those who go and preach the gospel of peace. One of the things I've seen in the church, and it just grieves my heart, is that people are caught up in their own kingdom. They're having pity parties a lot of times, and it just breaks your heart because they shouldn't be there sulking in their own situation. They should be out on the streets in the highways and the byways preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then they wonder why they're in the situation that they're in, because the heart needs to change. It's not about my kingdom. It's not about me. It's not about my ministry. It's about you and I going out there and sharing with the people who need to hear the love of the Lord. Why? Because as we look at this right here, we see that they are guilty. They're guilty. And we need someone to go out there and to share this message with them. Paul here says they're Jews. Yes, they're Greeks. All the people, man, in every continent on this whole planet, they need the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul then offers the scriptural support to share that they're all guilty. Because look what it says there in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb, and with their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul says they're all guilty. And then he gives the scriptural support to share his message. Here he quotes from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. And if you read Psalm 14 in the context, you really get the power of it because there in the beginning of Psalm 14, it says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. 
Literally, the fool has said in his heart, no God. And as a result of that, this is a life that they live. Paul here quotes from Psalm 14. He also quotes from Psalm 51, really the thing that's repeated there. And the thing that's interesting is this. Psalm 14 says this. Psalm 51 says this. Romans chapter 3 says this. Three times is what? A confirmation. It's God establishing this truth that what? There is none who seeks after God. No, not one. No one seeks after God. Now, what about that guy in the Philippines? Every year, did you guys know about this? He gets crucified. What about him? You're telling me he doesn't seek after God? Or what about that Tibetan monk? There he is. His whole life is dedicated to prayer. You're telling me he doesn't seek after God? Yes. Because the Bible says that there is none who seeks after God. No, not one. As a Christian, you can seek after God, but not as a non-Christian. That man in the Philippines who gets crucified every single year, he's seeking the guilt to be taken away. He's seeking religion. He's not seeking God. That Tibetan monk, same thing. He's seeking peace or, or some type of inter, you know, contemplation. He's not seeking God. It's an experience. The truth is, God was seeking after us. When we were lost and we were dead in our sins, when we were going our own way, God, the Bible says, came seeking after us. He left heaven and he came down and did this little speck of space that you can barely see there in the Milky Way galaxy. And there on that little planet, he became a man and he went out on a journey. The Bible says the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He went looking for you. And the Bible says in the book of Luke 15 that Jesus Christ is the one who went looking for the sheep. He went looking for that lost coin. He turned over every desk. Where's it at? I'm going to find that man. I'm going to find that woman. The prodigal son came home and he ran to him. Paul here is quoting and he says, there's none that seeks after God. He's quoting from Psalms. He quotes that principle really. is Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20. There is not a just man on earth who does good and, and does not sin. There's no one who's good enough to go to heaven on their own merit. He quotes from Psalm 5, verse 9, and chapter 10, verse 7, and chapter 36, verse 1, and chapter 140, verse 3. I encourage you to go and read all those verses here. Paul knew the word, and he put them all together, systematic theology, sharing the fact that in anthropology, man was guilty. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 7 through 8, and he says, there is none who seeks after God. He goes on and he talks about their vocabulary in verses 13 through 14. Notice it says right there that their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. I mean, apart from the Lord, what are the people talking about, you guys? In all honesty, what are people talking about? It's crazy, huh? It's amazing the, the foul language that spews out of their mouth. The verbal abuse that goes on all around the world. The Lord Jesus Christ says, apart from him, their throat is like a grave. It's just rotting. It's open. It's ugly. He talks about the fact that with their mouth, they speak 
deceitful things and poisonous things. Well, I know a guy, he doesn't curse, he doesn't use four-letter words. He's a Muslim. While that Muslim is speaking deceit and poison. You know, and you see so many things going on, the cursing, the bitterness. You know, one of the things that just breaks my heart is the backstabbing that takes place, the gossip. You know, I hate gossip. And I've shared with you guys many times, I pray that you would as well. You know, the testimony that you want to have when you die one day, and that someone can come up, and when they give an eulogy for you, that they'll say this, you, never, I, you know, I never heard him say an ill word about anyone else behind their back. That is a testimony that we need to shoot for. But what ends up happening in the world apart from Christ, and even us as Christians, sometimes in our flesh is where our hearts aren't right, and therefore our words aren't right. See, that's the way of the world. We hear the things they say, the ugliness, the bitterness, the things that are not true. He talks about their vocabulary. He talks about the violence there in verse 15 through 17. Notice their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. That's the world that we live in, man. The violence that takes place, literally, symbolically. You know, it's a crazy thing, the abuse that takes place out there. So many people, man, just being torn up by the hearts of the unsaved. He gives the reason there in verse 18, the the ultimate reason is there is no fear of God before their eyes. I mean, you guys, that's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. And I think that that's what helps me, you know, a a lot is I fear God. I can't say a bad word about that person, about that person. I can't be doing this and that to my wife and my children, to my brothers and my sisters. The things that God wants me to do, not the things that everyone else wants me to do, the things that God wants me to do. I can't go apart from that. Why? Because I fear God. But they won't like you. That's okay. I got to do what God wants me to do. And you need to do what God wants you to do. Why? Because you fear him. You know, they don't fear the Lord. You know, they'll go and they'll spend a whole bunch of money. Now now we have, what, 43 million abortions. The, The blood that's on our hands, the blood of those people that are making those decisions. There's no fear of God in their eyes. See, that's the world, you guys, that we live in. That's the people that don't have the Lord. Paul right here is just saying, listen, they're all guilty. And we need to know that. You know, please, whatever you do, it's not new, but it's true. You got to know that apart from Christ, no one will go to heaven. This is a description. This is a brief description, really, of where they're at. And so it says there in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Who is under the law? Well, really, all non-Christians are under the law. Galatians 5.18 says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so as Christians, you're not under the law. As non-Christians, you're under the law in either two ways, either the law of conscience or the law of canon. You see, 
All non-Christians are under the law, whether it be general revelation or special revelation, the conscience of the heart or the canon of Scripture. You know, even their bodies tell them they're guilty, and the Bible tells them they're guilty. Why? It says right here that every mouth may be stopped, so that every mouth may be silenced, and so that all the world may become guilty before God. You see, those laws, whether they're written on their hearts or they're written on this page, they have a purpose, and that is to lead the lost to the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ. By the deeds of the law, we see here that no flesh will be justified in his sight. As a matter of fact, the law simply lets us know we're sentenced sinners and we're guilty before God. And that's, you know, the way that we need to understand the scriptures that's the way we need to understand the world and that's why in going through romans i know it's a different book than maybe most of you have you know studied and like i said before it's a theological masterpiece and treatise but he's just going over and over again sharing with everyone that they're guilty and and they need to know that and we've heard that week after week after week after week and so I hope and pray, I think, that you guys know that, huh? That the world is guilty apart from God, apart from Jesus Christ. And it's not that God is doing something to make him guilty. It's simply that mankind is guilty before God, and there is absolutely nothing he can do on his own to make himself right in God's sight. You know, even religion will not save a single soul. It needs to be a relationship, huh? And so if you can just imagine that, guilty before God. That's the condition of the world. Sentenced as sinners. There they are with their sins, an infinite fence against God. And so they're worthy of what? Guilty before God. What are they, what are they worthy of then? The whole world is headed for hell. And what are we doing? Where is the passion? What are we doing? knowing that the whole world is guilty and headed for hell. You see, this is the truth. And that was all of us, and that is all of them, hopeless, helpless, and headed for hell. But notice what we read next. It says there in verse 21, but now... The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Finally, man, finally we get here to this portion of Romans. And you watch, you guys, Romans is going to be such an awesome book. A little tough in the beginning, but it's an incredible book. The great salvation that God has given to us. He says, but now, and there in verse 21, two of the greatest words we read in the whole Bible. You know, it reminds us, I think, of those words we read in the book of Ephesians, subtle and yet powerful. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, and which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That was us at one time. 
among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. I mean, that was us. Remember how it was the B.C. days? It wasn't that long ago. You were doing all those things. That was us, children of wrath by nature. But then it says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I mean, if you could visualize yourself there sliding down that slippery slope, man, and you knew right in the end where it was headed. It was headed to hell. There was no way to, you know, save yourself. You were helpless. You were hopeless. All of a sudden, this hand just steps in. It picks you up and lifts you out and saves your soul. That's what God has done for us. That's the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. ACDC, they were actually right in that sense. Remember that song, Highway to Hell? I hope you guys don't, but that's where we were, man. The slippery slope without hope, but God intervened. And he took responsibility in our impossibility. See, this is a gospel, nothing new, but something true that needs to hit our heart a little bit more today. For some of you here today, it'll be a day of gratitude. Wow, Lord, thank you so much. I've seen what you've done in my life. Lord, I forgot. I forgot. I owe you everything. For some of you here today, I think it'll be an opportunity for you to just man fan the fire. I've got to go out and I've got to evangelize. I got to go sharing with people and calling up people and main, you know, sending those cards and doing those things to the lost. We were those sinners on that highway to hell, but God has changed our course and He's given us heaven. This is the righteousness of God apart from the law. It's revealed to us now, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. You see, you guys, we need to know uh, once again, behavior will not save us, but belief will. Our behavior cannot save, but his blood can. And that's the heart and hope of God, that none would perish. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's the heart of God. That's the heart of Paul, the messenger of God. And so he writes to the whole world, you know, guilty, 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 so that in their humility they might fall to their knees and place their faith in Jesus Christ. You know, I pray and hope, and man, that you guys are all saved. But there might be some of you here today, you know you're not where you should be. And maybe tonight's, today's study might, might, might speak to your heart, that do you really know the Lord? Do you really know the Lord? Do you have a hunger for the things of God? Are you sure? Because you want to make sure. Religion won't save you. Being a good person won't save you. Giving money to the church won't save you. Serving in the ministry won't save you. Church attendance won't save you. Praying that prayer like whatever it was, that doesn't save you. Is it real in your heart? Behavior will not save you. Belief will. Are you sure you believe? If you really believe, then your life will show it. C.H. Spurgeon said, a faith that doesn't change my behavior will never change my destiny. Right now, can I ask you a question? Do you realize that there's nothing you can do to save your soul? 
Do you realize that you were guilty before God, only worthy of hell? And have you cried out from the deepest part of your heart, God, save me, have mercy on me. Jesus, I turn from my sins and I totally trust you and only you as my Lord and Savior. It's our responsibility to share with you that simple message because when we're in heaven one day, and we're having that Almani barbecue over there on that side in heaven, okay, we want you to be in heaven because he wants you there with him. It's a personal relationship between you and him. You know, thank God for the brothers and sisters in the church. I thank God for my friends and my family. But don't let them stumble you in your walk. It's a personal relationship between you and him. And nothing or no one should get in the way. See, salvation by faith. See, Paul here needed to tell everybody that they were guilty so that they would come to the Lord. I mean, when will, in all honesty, when will a man ask for directions? Not just when he's lost, when he knows he's lost, and he has absolutely no hope to get out of this situation, then he'll probably ask for directions, right? Or, or same thing, when will a man go to the doctors? Well, when the message of pain and panic are so clear that he knows He has no other option. And when will a man turn from his sins and truly, totally repent and receive Christ? Only when he knows he is guilty before God. He is lost and dead in his sins and in desperate need of a Savior. You know, there might be some of you here today and you're not, you're in sexual sin. You know, people out there, they're they're not married, but they're living together can't go to heaven like that. You can't be getting high and getting drunk. You can't be persistently and consistently verbally abusing your wife or your children or anyone. Living in habitual unrepentant sin and having assurance, you just can't. The Lord's given us that grace and that when we were guilty, we trusted in him. And right here, the whole thing is so cool. Paul just shares, listen, this is how you're saved. And we're going to see, even as we continue studying the Bible, that it just balances out our life. And we live a life that reflects his glory. Verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. To be justified right here, in verse 24, is such an important word. And we read it here, we read also something similar in verse 26 and that God is just and he's a justifier. And this is what happened, you guys. When you gave your life to Christ, that day, whatever it was, that moment, that season in your life where you truly gave your life to Christ, all of a sudden, in a twinkling of an eye, in a moment of time, I remember for me, it was August 20th, 1989. That moment, God spoke over me a legal declaration of righteousness. And that's what justification is. To be justified means to be legally declared righteous before the judge. 
In this case, the judge is Jesus. And there you are, legally declared righteous in his holy, holy eyes. There he is in heaven. And there you are in that courtroom one day where you will stand before him. And God will see you as justified. You know, if you come in that courtroom one day, if they come in that courtroom one day in their own righteousness, then they will not stand. Because all have sinned, we see right here, and fall short of the glory of God. But as you stand in the righteousness of Christ in the courtroom of heaven, then you are legally declared righteous, formally, eternally, justified forever and ever. And the thing is that what that word means is that it takes you all the way back to the point of you being seen in God's eyes just as if you'd never sinned. That's the amazing thing. Just as if you'd never sinned. That's what justification is. I remember reading a story about um, that car company, those cars, I, I guess they're really expensive, Rolls Royce cars. And one day a man bought one, he took it, he was driving, he was in France and it broke down. And so he calls the company and says, you know, I just bought this Rolls Royce. It broke down on me. And so you know what they did? They, they flew men from Great Britain to France. They repaired his car and he went on in life. Gets home a couple of months later and he calls them just out of curiosity. You guys came out, fixed my bill. Uh, my car, I, I didn't get a bill yet. So I'm waiting for that. And uh, they said, we don't have any record of any repair in France on a Rolls Royce. He said, yeah, you guys came, you did the work, everything. No, we have no records. Why is that? Well, because they didn't want that on their records, right? They wanted a good, clean, no, no jack-ups right in the Rolls Royce industry, right? And all I can say is that in looking at that, in one sense, that's the way it is with us and God. There is no record of your sins. There is no record. You know the thing that one of the most amazing things about the Bible, about God that blows me away. And I remember I had a little discussion with this one of my friends. You know, the Bible says that he remembers our sins no more. And I'm like, well, of course God remembers our sins. God is omniscient. God sees, God knows everything. How could he not remember our sins? He's chosen not to. And so when he looks at you in the legal courtroom setting, he remembers no more. That's justification. This is what God has done for us. It says right here that we've been justified, but how? Freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Grace, you guys, God's reward at Christ's expense, unmerited favor. It costs the Father everything, but for us it's free through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You know, there's three different words for redemption in the Greek. One of the words for redemption speaks about, you know, when you were to go on the slave uh, market, and really it all has to do with that whole, you know, mall setting, and there everything would be sold. And, you know, if you were to be redeemed, there's three different things that they could do. One is they could buy you. They could take you to their place. You could work for a season and then you'd go back. But that's not this Greek word. There's another Greek word that says, I'll take you, I'll buy you. 
and you'll be mine forever. And that's pretty cool, but that's not what this Greek word is. The Greek word we have here for redemption is when you would go to the slave market and you would buy a slave and you would set him free. And that's what God has done for us. We were singing that song earlier. God has set us free. He has redeemed us. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Hebrews 9.12 says, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You know, the other night I had a dream. And, um, you know, I'm careful in sharing dreams with you guys because, you know, the Bible says, what's the dream to my word? But I wasn't going to share this with you guys, but the Lord, uh, I don't know. I had this dream. And in my dream, my son died. Okay. I was driving down the road and I saw him there lying face down on the ground. I pulled over and I began to weep. I was weeping. I was weeping my dream. I don't know exactly the details, but there was a police officer coming down this way and he had my son's bicycle, the the wheel of his bicycle. I guess it had fallen off and that's how he had died. He was going too fast. And so I ran to the police officer and I said, give me that, that, that wheel. I want to put it on my wall. And I just began to weep. My son, my son. And I was weeping so much. I woke up from my dream. And I just ran out of bed and I ran to my son. And I don't know why, but he was sleeping with the head over his, the pillow over his head. I said, get up. <laughs> what are you doing sleeping like that? And thank God he was okay and I held him. for your son to die. Well, we are redeemed in that God gave his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. All I can tell you is this, man. God loves you a whole lot. There might not be a lot of other people that love you that much. Oh, we try, but we will fail you. Don't get your eyes on men. God loves you. And that's a lot. And in that love, he has justified us. He has redeemed us. Notice what it says here in verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously 
committed. Now, I love that word propitiation because, you know, what that word really means is the mercy seat. You see, God set forth his son as a propitiation, and that means mercy seat. And what that is speaking of, if you remember the tabernacle, you remember the temple, you know, and what would take place on the day of atonement, on Yom Kippur, once a year, the high priest would go into the most holy place. He could only go in once a year with the blood, and he would take the blood, and there would be the Ark of the Covenant, and the two cherubim would be facing each other. It was a lid made of pure gold. And once a year, he would take the blood, and he would apply it there on the mercy seat. It was made of gold. It was symbolic of God's crown and God's cross. The same thing, the cross, the crown, and there they would put the blood right there on the mercy seat. And in placing that blood there, that blood would cover the sins of all the people. And that's what Jesus is to us. He's our mercy seat. And you want to know what the Lord told Moses? I'll meet you there. I'll meet you at the mercy seat. See, that's who Jesus is for us. In this justification, in the cross of Christ, he himself is just and he's the justifier. That's what we read next in verse 26 to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so we're going to heaven, you guys. You know, some of us might go this year. You've got to be ready. You just never know when God's going to call your name. We might get raptured. I'm so excited about that. Well, how can you go to heaven? Because I know some of you guys here. How can God be just in sending you sinners to heaven? And the answer is that he's not only the just, he's the justifier. And that he makes you just. Because God is love, yes. And so, you know, some might say, well, then everyone should be able to go to heaven because God is love, but God is also light. And in him is no darkness at all. How could an unholy person go to a holy place called heaven? Well, God made a way through the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, it's all him. He gets the credit. He gets the glory. All we need to do is believe. Just believe. With all your heart, just believe. It's free fellowship with God and is found only by faith in Jesus Christ. And we have nothing to boast of. Notice there in verse 27, where is boasting then? Well, it's excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. It's so cool. He just says this over and over again. Jew, Gentile, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. Pagan, heathen. Mexican, doesn't matter who you are, you're guilty. But if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, let there be a peace. Let there be an assurance. Let there be a certainty who you belong to. You belong to the living God. Because you have 
placed your trust in him. And therefore, there's no reason for us to boast. None of us here can say, well, I was good enough. I prayed long enough. I had devotions nine times a day. None of us here can say, well, I led so many people to the Lord or I did this and that. None of us here could say I was better than that person. No one here can boast in anything. Why? Because God has saved us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I will never be able to stand before God and boast about my prayer life or my knowledge of the Bible or the amount of money I gave to the church or the number of people I supposedly helped in Holiness, not a single solitary good or godly deed of mine will ever contribute a single cent to the salvation of my soul. I have nothing to boast of. I have nothing to offer. Absolutely nothing except the falling of me on my knees and trusting in Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That of the song, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. See, that's what we are as Christians. And that's our heart. And that's what saves us. And today, I pray that that would bless your heart. You know, uh, someone gave me a DVD the other day of a village that was recently converted in Papua New Guinea. And uh, it was an amazing story. One day, maybe you can see the video. Maybe we'll show you one day. But I remember um, this a couple of days ago, looking at this video. It was a whole village of people. Some missionaries came in, and they started to, you know, learn the language, learn the culture, uh, show them that they really cared. And then eventually the day came when they began to teach the Bible to them. And they had hundreds of the villagers there and they would teach them the Bible, but they didn't teach them about Jesus in the beginning. In the beginning, they taught them from the Old Testament. They went throughout the whole Old Testament. They went through all the stories and all the pictures and really gave them the picture of the holiness of God. And so they came to that point, the whole village came to that point knowing we're guilty, knowing that God is just in judging them. And they were fearful. They were very fearful. They were, this missionary team was teaching for two months and then they began to teach the New Testament and they began to teach the life of Christ and they loved Christ. They loved the way that he taught and the things that he did. They loved Jesus. But then the day came, the teachers told this tribe that the tide had turned, that he had been betrayed by Judas and that he was crucified. And they just could not understand it. This man of love, this man of life, they loved Jesus. How could they kill Jesus? But then the final days came and they said, listen, tomorrow's going to be the last story in the Bible. And so be here. And, and they met before the sun went up. Check this out. In all the days, all the months of the teaching there in the tribe, no one missed a single day, even though they taught two times a day, Monday through Friday. People were carried on stretchers. Women who were pregnant and were ready to give birth, they would put them behind some leaves right there so that they could hear the message of the gospel. It was just an incredible thing. 
And when he shared them that final message and that Jesus had died, yes, but he conquered death and he rose again. And that if they would place their faith in him, they could be saved. You know, it was called truth. It was saying believe. The, the word there was etau, etau, etau. And suddenly the whole tribe, hundreds, began to shout out, etau, it's true, etau, I believe. And you know what happened? When the teacher told them that because of that, their sins were forgiven, that the wrath of God was gone that they were free. All of a sudden, it was so cool. Spontaneous worship and rejoicing took place. The whole tribe, and I wish you guys could do it this morning, man. The whole tribe was just jumping up and down. They were praising God. They were just so elated for two hours rejoicing in what God had done. Now, I know for us, you know, maybe it's been a while and you're like, well, I can't spur up that emotion. I might hurt my knee or something. <laughs> but I pray, I pray that that joy would be in your heart. Father, we thank you so much for loving us the way that you do. Making a way even when we were guilty and, Lord, lost. You came, you found us. And Lord, I pray that in light of that, that we would rejoice, that we would worship, Lord God. That there would be no reservations, no hesitations in our passion to love you and to live for you and to reach out, Lord, if you would give us opportunity. Lord, we get lost, I think, a lot of times in in many different ways. And Lord, I'm not saying that any trials here are not hard or difficult, Lord, but um, I just pray, Lord, that we would just rise above those circumstances, that you would lift us up, that you would help us to stand on a rock and to be solid Christians, sold out and surrendered to you, Lord. We thank you so much, Lord, for allowing us to study your word, to have this truth. And Lord, I pray if there are any here who don't know you, Lord, that today, today, just by that miracle, Lord, that they would place their faith in Jesus Christ. Help us all, Lord God. All of us here need your help today. We love you and we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand. If you're here today and you need prayer,